Hello and welcome to The Latecomers, episode two. I am Amity. I am Lemuel. And we have just watched episode two of the first season of Twin Peaks. The episode title is Traces to Nowhere. Before we get into that, um, anything new and interesting since the last time we spoke, which was recently, we don't have to say how recently. It's the magic of radio and podcasting. Uh, fall has come to the Bay Area. It is cold. It is officially cold in the house. Anything else? No. No. <laughs> you have nothing to add. Awesome. That concludes our general small talk section. Great. It was very small. Very so small. small talk. Itty bitty talk. Miniature talk. Um... So we'll get right into it. Uh, The episode was called Traces to Nowhere. The original air date was Thursday, April 12th, 1990. Let me tell you what else was happening on Thursday, April 12th, 1990, as my cat climbs me like a tree. Stop it. I'll Be Your Everything by Tommy Page was the number one song. I have zero recollection. No recollection. I was there. Um... I was big into Taylor Dane last week, but this means nothing to me. Uh, Because this aired the Thursday following the Sunday premiere, all our movies and TV were basically the same. No good holidays. Oh, Yuri's Night, an international celebration of the first human in space. Yuri Gagarin in Russia, or Gagarin? Gagarin? Godzilla Gagarin. No. (laughs) <laughs> uh, the Cosmonautics Day. So that is uh, a 12th of April holiday. Oh, and Greyhound Bus uh, facilitated some scabs to uh, bypass their striking workers. So uh-huh. that's festive. That was uh, a medical problem. <laughs> Ooh, while number one... In the United States was Tommy, pa- Tommy Page's I'll Be Your Everything, which has left zero uh, imprint on my psyche. I have no recollection of it. Number 10 was Black Velvet by Alana Miles, which is an excellent song. <laughs> and so I'm hoping to see that move up the charts as we go. Or maybe it's already, I've missed its heyday and it's <laughs> sliding Time is down. coming down. <laughs> um, all right, so... This is um, episode two, or in Wikipedia, they refer to it as episode one, as the pilot was a full... Zero. It's a zero, but also a full movie, so it doesn't really count. Um, And this episode, like the previous, written by Mark Frost and David Lynch, and the director was... I'm going to go ahead and give him the benefit of the doubt and assume his name is Dwayne... It's Dwayne. 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 But Dwayne Dunham. Uh, and could it you... It sounds like it's not a real name. No, it, it does. It actually sounds like perhaps one of Jeff Dunham's terribly racist puppets. This is a real man I'm speaking of, so I apologize, Mr. Dunham. I'm, you have, you've done an admirable job directing this episode, and I really should not torture you for something that was not your fault. Your parents named you. My name is Amity, so perhaps I should just keep quiet on the name front. Will you please read us the Wikipedia synopsis? Cooper's investigation into the murder of Laura Palmer continues as her secret boyfriend James Hurley is interrogated. And it appears that both trucker Leo Johnson and Laura's psychiatrist Dr. Jacoby may have some connection to the crime. Laura's best friend Donna and Audrey Horn. Horn. Vow to solve the murder. All right. So that's a much more succinct synopsis than the first one that we had. Um, Fewer things happened. Granted, this was a regular television-length episode. It wasn't an hour and a half long. Horn. Um, So let's get into it. Um, We did find out, uh, this was a burning question from last week. Burning. Burning. Uh, Whether the credits would be the same and... Netflix helpfully skipped the first 90 seconds of the show, and so I rewound it and found, yes, indeed, we open on Bird, and the first 90 minutes, or or 90 seconds, rather, are the same, very cinematic, 
very long opening sequence. Um, we have not changed the population on the sign of Twin Peaks. So that's not a thing that's going to happen. It's probably Andy's job. Um, and I he was in a sobbing be. fit, so he therefore we could not come into work. We didn't see any Andy this episode. We yes. saw police officer number three, uh, um, a gentleman who of height and stature and flowing hair and no name. I do not believe I know his name. I tried to find one written on his clothing. I was unable to do so. So police officer number three. Officer No Name. We open this episode on the same shot as we opened on the first episode, where it's just the waterfall and the hotel at the top of the waterfall, which you thought uh, reminded you of something. Of William Hope Hodgson's uh, House on the Borderland, where there's a house on the edge of a huge crevasse and frighteningly close. And and I'm looking at that hotel. I can't imagine spending a night there in any kind of comfort. But then... Be inside. Don't well, be outside. Yes, but this is earthquake country, so I keep picturing it tumbling down the side of the hill. This is a concern. It's probably been there for long enough. It probably has. And it's not high. It's not a tall hotel. This is a ranch-style hotel. This right. hotel is all in one level. Um, with really good coffee. Apparently. Yes. Yes. So we open with Cooper narrating to Diane his... Dictaphone. I'm going to go ahead and say imaginary friend. His dictaphone. Is that the, you think that's just the I dictaphone thing? I don't know. Thing? I think that she might not actually exist. And <laughs> she simply, well, his imaginary friend is as good a, a label as any. And uh, he is narrating the costs and, and positive points of the hotel at which he stayed. Uh, we are, in fact, the next day. And, in fact, I believe this entire episode is one day. It is Saturday, the day following Laura's uh, finding. So nobody's at school. There's no school scenes right. in this episode. Um, so this is this we're we're entering this town on this on the Saturday. He finishes out his narration to Diane, not on the case, but on two burning questions that he has, both as an FBI agent and as a human being. What was Marilyn Monroe's relationship with the Kennedys, and who really pulled that trigger against JFK? And then he goes to get some coffee. <laughs> so apparently, that's. I wonder if that's going to come up every episode, or if he's going to ask random questions about other conspiracy theory type things going forward. So he goes down to the hotel um, to find out the most important thing uh, about any hotel, and that's whether or not their coffee is any good. Uh, He makes the waitress stand and watch him drink the cup, which is a little bit gross, and does proclaim it to be a... To have a good cup of coffee. I believe damn fine. Damn fine cup of coffee. Damn fine cup of coffee. Excuse me, he says. That's a damn fine cup of coffee. Um, He then proceeds to order breakfast as Audrey enters uh, the room and sucks up all of his attention, which is very disconcerting because that is a child. I mean, not a child. She's 17, maybe 18, probably not legal. She comes over to the table and introduces herself. He asks her to sit or allows her to sit and she talks about how she knew Laura as somebody who three days a week would tutor her brother, who's 27, in the third grade, and, quote, has emotional problems. They run in the family. So <laughs> she's just putting all of her warnings clearly marked right on the label. And that's the last thing we see. And then the next thing we were flashed over to the station, the police station, where everyone is eating donuts, either still or again. It's unclear if these are new donuts or the same donuts from the previous evening. I don't think they'd be the same donuts if she's so careful about them. That's true. And she does say that there are jelly donuts special for Agent Cooper. Now, at no point has Agent Cooper mentioned that he enjoys a jelly donut. Well, we know certainly that it's causing some kind of gastrointestinal distress for Mr. Truman, who seems to be suffering from indigestion the entire episode. I did not notice this. Yes, because when they had the donut moment, 
Well, that I think was because he took a giant bite of that donut and then Cooper comes in and just starts talking at him. Right. And he's trying to chew through this donut and then Cooper says... So he can't chew in front of the FBI? Well, he can chew, <laughs> but not with his mouth open and perhaps right. he had taken too large a mouthful. I that don't know. It's unclear. There's a large cartoonish gulp at the end of that scene. So Cooper comes in, gives him a rundown of what they're going to do, says he has to pee and leaves. It's a cut to later in the day where Truman and Cooper are meeting with the doctor, who is Donna's father, and as such has known Laura his whole life and could not bring himself to perform the autopsy. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were right. He is town doctor slash medical examiner, but he has brought someone else in to do that. Then we finally find out a little bit more about the crime. So uh, yeah, those are the details I was missing last week. They seem to provide them all. Well, I mean... To an extent, because they they do mention, again, she's been bled to death, right? Right, yes. Um, So we know that her uh, time of death was was between midnight and 4 a.m. The cause of death was loss of blood due to many punctures. Is that how he words it? I believe so, yeah. They don't specifically say stab wounds. And then she has bites on her shoulders. And also on her tongue, which the doctor believes is self-inflicted. Now, I assume that he only means the bites on the tongue are self-inflicted. Right. I don't know how one would bite their own shoulder. So I think that... They, Determination. It might be a, a silencing technique yourself. or some way right. that she was trying to... Or if she was gagged. Right. Right. Oh, that's true, too. And her wrists were bound, and she had had sexual intercourse. Sexual intercourse. With at least three men or three, three men? Three men. Three men. I, believe. I think he said at least three. Um, he and emphasized that it was sexual intercourse. Yes. Ronette uh, in the hospital, uh, he believes, was assaulted by the same perpetrators. Um, and when asked when they would be able to interview her, he says it's unclear. Uh, she's had severe head injury and also presumably severe psychological trauma as he believes he wa- that she had witnessed what had happened to Laura prior to whatever happened to her. Um, we're going to switch over, and the f- screen is filled with the words Big Pussycat, and we pull out, and it's Leo's truck. Shelly's getting ready to go to work, lets him know she has made him some food. She has done all of his laundry like a... Good little wife. He says, all the laundry? And she says, yes. And then he pulls out a bag of laundry, shoves it in her hands, and says, not all of it. Because he's an asshole. Um, And she submits and puts the laundry, goes to put that laundry in the washing machine before she heads off to work. And sees a shirt, a blue shirt, covered in blood. Like, stiff with dried blood. Um, and did she, what did she do with it? She hid it. She hid it. Okay, that's what I thought. She hid it, and he's looking for the shirt later. Right, and doesn't find it. Which to right. um, yeah, improvise we'll, a nunchuck. We'll, we'll get there. Um, so she hides that. She doesn't just wash it. She just hides it away. Um, and then we flip back to the police station where they are talking to James. Uh, Truman and Cooper are talking to James. Uh, They refer to his motorcycle as a cycle, which I think might be the first time I've ever heard that. They ask, did you know that Laura was doing cocaine? And he says, I did. I tried to get her to stop. Of course you did, Because it always works. It always works when you just tell people, could you stop taking cocaine? Could you stop? Please. That would be really great. It hurts my feelings when you take cocaine. (laughs) Um, And says that she's been going through some things. She might be afraid of Bobby. Um, she was scared, so she had sort of stopped talking to him. The last time she saw, or he saw her, was the night of her death, which is the same story that he had told to Donna in the woods. So he's consistent. It is consistent. So Squarehead is no longer a suspect in your eyes. As far as I'm concerned, Squarehead is not a suspect. And he is not a suspect in Cooper's eyes either. No. Um, which we do find out. Um, so, but the night, Thursday evening... Laura snuck out after she'd come home at 9, at 9.30, because that's when you sneak out to go to the roadhouse, don't you know? And uh, at about 12.30, they were riding the bike together. She had 
basically split up with him, basically said, I can't see you anymore. Mm -hmm. And as he stopped the bike at an intersection, Sparkwood and 21 is how he said it. Not 21st, Sparkwood and 21. I don't know if that's like a freeway junction or something like that. It's probably in a reference that we're not going to get something Mm. that makes sense to David Lynch. She jumped off her bike and ran away and he never saw her again. Now, my question is, how fast did this woman w- run? You are on a motorcycle. What? <laughs> like, <laughs> but apparently, his heart was sad, and so he just decided to let her run off into the woods and uh, go home. Apparently, it happens. Um, I've had breakups like that. They just run off in the woods. You never hear from them again. <laughs> and um, Cooper asks what happened on February fifth. That's the date that. Uh, was marked in Laura's diary. And we see a flashback of Laura and he and the woods. And she says, do you know why I'm so happy? And he says, because your skin is so soft and you smell so good. It felt like it was he's a five? commercial. Like I'm, I'm about to see a setup for... Calgon, s- right. take me away. But it isn't for any of those reasons. It's actually because she really believes that James loves her. And she breaks a best friends forever BFF necklace in half and gives him half. All right. So we have moved to Shelly's house where Leo has been looking for... He's cleaning out his truck and he's looking for his bestest blue shirt. Probably the one that's covered in blood, he says. Out loud to no one, where's that shirt? And he goes to the washing machine. It's not in the washing machine because, as we've covered, Shelly has hidden it. Uh, and then he slams the washing machine and assaults it and throws it. And it moves a whole bunch, and he seems like a mad giant. And then we flip back to the jail where Mike and Bobby are talking, and Mike is worried because he knows. He got a call from Leo saying that he wants the other half of his money. Mm. Uh, We find out that Bobby has given him $10,000 and that the other half, the other $10,000, is in Laura's safe deposit box. And so Mike is pretty sure they're going to get, you know, murdered. Bobby doesn't seem to care because Bobby doesn't seem to care about... Anything. Ever. No, not at all. And we see other cop. Not Andy. Bring James back into the uh, other holding cell. And then we're treated to another airing of that video of Donna and Laura dancing up in the hills. Badly. Well, they're teenage girls having a good time. There's no excuse. I'm going to go with they probably dance better than you. You live in a very glass house. (laughs) So maybe dump those stones. Um, and then they there's it closes up or pulls in close to Laura's face and there there's a voiceover and I don't know if it's her. It just says help me. It's not an it's not attached to anything. Nobody's watching the video. It's unclear what all this is about. We switch back to Donna's house. Donna's come downstairs looking disheveled and lovely uh, and talks to her mom says you should, should have woken me up I was supposed to go to the police um, but apparently she'd been plagued by nightmares and her mother got a reprieve so she didn't have to go into the uh, station until later and then Donna has Donna has the most wholesome relationship with her parents because they sit on the couch and her mother asks her what's wrong, which, you know, her best friend died two days ago, so it's kind of a dumb question. But um, you should be over it in, you know, twenty four hours at the most. Yeah, kids are young; they heal quickly. They, right? they just spring right back. Donna describes how she is sad, but feels she should be more sad, and she feels like she's in a beautiful dream and a terrible nightmare because though James was seeing. Laura for the last two months last night they realized it was really she and he James and Donna that were falling in love so that Laura in effect was facilitating their relationship by her death 
and her right so, pseudo yeah. relationship, which she believed to be real because it's the happiest she'd been. Well, we find out later that it wasn't the happiest that she'd been. What do you mean? Well, what should the psychiatrist says the tape at the end of this episode. Well, but we that's not I'm talking about the February fifth flashback of do you know why I'm so happy? Well yes, but do you trust anything that Laura says at this point? I think that she believed that she was happy mm. on the day that she gave him the necklace. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, very naive. So she's seventeen, of course she's naive. That's her job. Well, that that's actually the only thing that's not her job. This girl, and we'll discuss this again in a minute, she was we know that she at least had the job tutoring Audrey's brother. Mm-hmm. That's job number one. Let's keep a tally. We'll come back to it. Uh, we go back to the jail, and uh, Ed uh, introduce, is introduced to Agent Cooper, um, introduced as James's uncle, which I don't think we knew quite before. Lucy uh, calls out in the most obnoxious voice. Her voice is something. It's like Carol Kane and, oh, there's a woman on Saturday Night Live. Victoria Jackson, maybe, I'm thinking of. That's a good match. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of mixed together. And she calls out that Cooper's got a call from an Albert Rosenfeld. She says it sounds long distance. You know, like wind through the trees and she keeps talking after he's picked up the phone and he just ignores her and goes as he should truman is talking to ed and saying you know i thought that he's because ed has a bandage on his head because he was the one that was in a fight with bobby and mike which is why they're in jail um and ed says oh i thought that might be because nadine found out about norma and so we know pirate lady's name is Nadine, Nadine, and waitress lady's name is Norma. It also seems to be an open secret. Yeah, well, it seems like. And it also seems, as we later learn, that Nadine is just... Um... Well, let's... <laughs> and uh, Ed talks about how he was in this fight, but he doesn't really remember it. He thinks his beer was drugged and gives the name of the bartender who was... It's a very French name. That's what I recall. Jacques something. But we don't follow up on that in this episode. Um, And then we flip back over to Cooper, who's in the same room talking to Albert, talking about um, something to do with Laura's body. But I was a little bit unclear. Um, So I don't know if Albert is a specialist that he's going to have come in. But he's definitely coming up because he says... If you're coming up from this way, there's a place right. you got to stop where the cherry pie will kill you. And it strikes me that if Cooper were alive today, and I'm wondering if in the new version, if it's even current day, which I think it is, uh, I believe that uh, Agent Cooper has a food blog. <laughs> I can see that. Or perhaps a podcast. I feel like... Where to go for cherry pie? Where to go for cherry pie? Yeah, all or the maybe places. Cherry pie recipes and damn fine coffee. Mm-hmm. And then we flip over and we're at a store where Nadine and Norma have run into each other. Nadine and Norma are in very close proximity, so I couldn't even tell where they were. Uh, Nadine's got a a bunch of bags of cotton balls because at four a.m. the idea of silent runners for her blinds. Or for her drapes, her beige sheer drapes that she is so in love with. Uh, She's going to make them silent runners using cotton balls. And she's extraordinarily excited about it. And Norma smiles and nods. And then as Nadine leaves, kind of rolls her eyes. And then we flip back to the station. James is released. And Truman uh, mentions to Cooper that he feels like he should start studying medicine because he feels like Dr. Watson. And then we flip over to Pete, who's cleaning some fish. And uh, Josie Packard comes in and says, thank you for standing up to me against Catherine. And then uh, Cooper and Truman show up to meet um, Josie. They uh, are offered coffee because, you know, that's the polite thing to do when someone comes over. Hot beverage. And they ask Miss Packard about Laura 
who had been coming over two days a week to help her with English. Unsuccessfully, I might add. Well, she was speaking English. Yes, she was. And most of the trouble that she seems to have are idiomatic issues. Like she said, thank you for standing up to me with Catherine, I think is well, the way that she said phrased to- On top of the morning? On or... top of the morning, yes. Right. So, but these are all idiomatic things, which are the, oh, I think, hardest things to learn in a foreign language. Um, because every language has their own metaphorical way to put these together. And so, but we find out, so Laura's been tutoring her in English, so that's job number two for this high school student. Who's very busy. Yes. Um, and that's probably why she had to take so much cocaine. Well, yes. Oh, that's true. A lot of jobs means lots of cocaine. Well, you'd think her youth would help. And all that coffee. Maybe she didn't drink coffee. Maybe that's a problem. Um, and she said that the last time that she saw Laura was Thursday afternoon at her English lesson, uh, where Laura seemed upset and said, now I understand uh, how you feel about your husband's death. And that was a fairly odd thing to say, which is probably why she remembers it. And then Josie leaves to maybe go get more coffee or something. And Cooper asks Harry immediately how long he's been seeing her, (laughs) uh, leading again into that Sherlock Holmes thing, Um, says he noticed the body language. That's how he uh, figured it out. And then they both take a sip of their coffee and Pete rushes back in and says, don't drink the coffee. (laughs) And then he says, I don't know how, but there was a fish in the percolator. And both of them have the look you get on your face if you had just drank fish coffee. I think that'll be the second biggest mystery in the program. How the fish got in the percolator. How the fish got in the percolator. And then we flip over and Josie has... Oh, Josie had left because she had gotten a phone call and it was Catherine on the phone um, telling her, you know, your shenanigans yesterday closing down the plant cost us $87,000. Basically just berating her for the sake of berating her. And then as as Catherine hangs up, she clinks champagne glasses with an unknown somebody, a gentleman, out of frame. Which is odd since her husband is with Josie. So that's not her husband. And then we flip right over. There's not even there's not even 30 seconds between who is this man that she is with and seeing the man she is with. And that yes, man is Mr. Horn, uh, Audrey's father, the owner of the hotel. I'm going to say richest man you in Twin Peaks, probably. Written H-O-R-N-E. Yes. Okay. His name's not Horny. It could be. It's, except for Audrey could go earlier. For his daughter, either Audrey Horny. Audrey introduced herself as Audrey Horn, and Audrey Horn is not one to shy away from the name Audrey Horny, if that was, in fact, her name. I think that's just for those of us who watch with closed captionings to to really know who these people are. I think that the father obviously also is uh, an issue with pyromania. Oh, yes. Um, yes, they are talking, they are, they are scheming. Catherine is scheming. sans clothes, wearing nothing but a bed sheet. They're having sexual intercourse. Well, no, not currently. Well, they have previously. We're between Bet- sexual yes, intercourse. Yes, exactly. Intercoursing. And apparently they've been doing this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are scheming to get the mill out of the hands of Josie, whether it's by bankruptcy. Delicate, beautiful hands of Josie. Yes, she's a lovely woman. It's true. Um, Maybe she's just jealous. I don't know. But she seems to be getting some, so I don't know what she's jealous of. I think she's jealous of that $86,000. $87,000. (laughs) $87,000 coming in a day. Yes, that would be something Um, to be jealous over. And they do allude to the fact that she wants to get this over with quickly because... Her husband might look at the books and see some creative math that she's been doing. Um, so she's skimming. Maybe he's skimming, too. Mm-hmm. It's unclear what the business relationships are, but the personal relationship seems to have been going on for a significant amount of time. And then one of them mentions perhaps it's time to start a fire, and that gets them all hot and bothered in the mood again. Yes. And, and he just finished putting his clothes on. Yes, he had. And then he starts taking off his tie again. After so. kissing her toes. Yes. So, that was just straight up 
fetishy on the screen. I mean, it's not, you imagine know, it's it, feet. It, it, it's still a body part. It's right. not that weird. But I was just like, okay, well, we're really gonna do this on a Thursday night. Okay. Well, that was it. Was supposed to be a daring, controversial program. So yes, there were little weird fetishy things and. I'm sure that's not the end of them either. No, probably not. Um, we switch back over to Donna's, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, to the Palmers, and this is that weird um, scene, that, surreal scene that you had mentioned. Uh, Donna is visiting, and uh, Mr. Leland Palmer uh, asks him, asked her to be careful not to upset her, his wife, which is virtually impossible because. His wife is in a state of perpetual upset at this right. point. <laughs> There's nothing that anyone can do about it. She sees the vision of Laura's face over Donna's face and then hugs her close and says, my baby, my baby, after crying, sobbing. In a, in a very, I mean, everybody grieves differently. <laughs> but this seems bonkers, what this lady is going through. Um But then she's hugging Donna to her, and Donna's letting her do it. And she's saying, Laura, my baby, my baby. And then she sees what appears to be a man crouching in the corner of the room. He's fully dressed Mm -hmm. in normal people clothes. He appears to be a native of some sort, though. Um, He appears to be a carny, if you ask me. You think so? He looks very much like the kind of person you see hanging around a... He had had very long hair. He had long grayish hair. Right. Um, but he looked like a native man to me, like okay. a, I don't know, indigenous peoples. And she loses it. She just starts screaming. And Donna's like, that's my cue. Peace out. And Leland comes in and ho- holds his wife as I she... I might say Donna appeals to me as the kind of person who got all sorts of badges in Sunday school. Okay. For being a good citizen and for going and dutifully visiting people and for... Yeah, I see what you're saying. She's yes. just... Uh, and she I, is the epitome of the girl next door. And she also is, um, I think she's uh, she's supposed to be the balance for Laura Palmer, who appears to be the girl next door, but lives a life of sin. Well, yes. <laughs> yes. Apparently. Which Allegedly. <laughs> also makes me question the relationship between Laura Palmer and uh, Andre Hornet, who, Yeah. who might have been either a closer friend or if she's, they might be moving in the same circles. Maybe, yeah. Okay, so then we're going to go over to the hospital um, that Cooper and Truman are interviewing Juanette's uh, parents who are quote-unquote normally distraught. Like, this is what I picture distraught parents looking like. Now, granted, their daughter is still alive and Mrs. Palmer does not have the luxury of that, but... um, Nor does she have the luxury of a decent haircut. (sighs) You and her hair. It looks like... It's not for you. Bailing wire. Oh, a woman's hair is not about I, what I, you I, think I about it. It's frightening, so... <laughs> we find out that Ronette had a, had a job in addition to the one that her parents probably don't know about. Which is hoeing at night. That's right. Being okay, in go. the... In the hoeing industry. That's a, a rude way to say it. She advertised in a skin magazine. This yes. is not... There's a more delicate way to say She's some a of sex this. worker. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's how we say it. Sex worker. But also she worked at a perfume counter. Which is more of a hoeing industry than being a sex worker, I'm sure. And, oh, you know what? It wasn't Trooper. It wasn't Cooper. I want to call them Trooper. Trooper Trooper. Trooper. Truman and Cooper. It was not Andy that was Uh doing this interview because he is half listening to them Mm -hmm. and then sees a man with one arm. One arm a single arm who also looks indigenous as i pointed out he might yeah he, he might, might be. Be. oh the police officer yeah, the officer yes absolutely yes because right. i thought is this his dad mm. <laughs> that was my thought he sees a one-armed man and he says excuse and me one-armed men are trouble as we they are. are harrison ford will tell you and he follows him down a hallway through a door and behind that door is a a room bathed in black light or something. The lighting is very strange. And the man has disappeared. He's not there. And the officer shakes his head like, hmm, that's weird. Which is the theme of the episode, disappearing men, with one arm or with long hair. Well, that we don't know if that other man disappeared. Well, he wasn't in the room, obviously. But he may never have been in the room. Do you disappear if you were never there to begin with? That depends. Hmm. We flip back up to the hotel. Audrey is dancing. 
her father, adulterer. So you uh, know who's being judgmental. Also in the hoeing industry, in a different direction. I, don't, I think adulterers. <laughs> Adulterer. A factual term, and hoeing is a judgmental term. But I might be wrong. If I'm wrong, I apologize. But her dad, uh-huh. who is engaged in an extramarital affair, comes in to tell her to turn her damn music down um, and says, you know, you didn't say anything to the Norwegians, right? And she straight up just is like, oh, yeah, I totally said that my friend Laura died horribly. (laughs) And he is upset and says that he's going to send her to clean bidets at a nunnery or something like that. And Which actually isn't actually staying at the nunnery. It's just a job that you have cleaning bidets. Yes. I, I don't know how nuns got so delicate either. I, I don't imagine them I using don't, bidets. I don't Yeah. Oh, a French nunnery. It was, was it French very or specific. was it Bulgarian or something? Oh, maybe. It yes. It might have been one of those Eastern European bidets, which are not so tidy, I guess. Let's not. I'm cutting no, no. that out. <laughs> no, but I mean, that seems to be the, 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 what he's suggesting, that somehow it's like a low-end part of Europe rather than... Oh, a, is that... Uh, yeah, that and, I didn't... And you can up. cut that out, but still, <laughs> I think that's what the suggestion was. It's like a low... Like, Romanian this is going to be extra gross? <laughs> it's going to be extra gross. Not only that's is it terrible. a European bidet, a terrible European country. Well, we know that they, he didn't have much truck or right. respect for the Norwegians that he had in oh, his well, yeah, hotel. No. I don't, but I don't understand what the idea was supposed to be. Like, the, there's no murder in Norwegia, right? Well, it's not that there's no murder, it but you, it's time. like if we were buying a house and they were like, you know, it's cool that DeFeo killed his whole family here, right? And we were like, uh, what's the price break? Right. <laughs> they were like, mm, not worth it. I want to break per body. That seems right. And so Audrey, you know, is like, I'm not scared of your dumb threats. And then he says, Laura died two days ago, but I lost you years ago. And I'm just like, you're probably a bad dad, but I'm pretty sure she's also a psychopath. So there seems to be like an abuse pattern going on there. Yeah. And like I said, she says that she's emotionally disturbed. Over-sexualized daughter and this dad who runs around. Yeah. So then we go over to uh, Bobby's house where the Bobby is having dinner with his parents his father eats in full military uniform i don't know if you're supposed to do that but i don't know if he's actually in the military either that's a good question i don't know how to interpret all of the um various badges and things um wear no stinking badges he the the language in the scene is weird and stilted like the father will say like literally says something like i understand you're uncomfortable speaking with me your father Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, like, well, are you was, not really his father? That Is that what we're trying the to? The only scene, because you mentioned this uh, last time, that felt expositional. Like, I understand that you're uncomfortable speaking to me, your father, in the military, wearing my military uniform. Right. Yes. However, I'm going to smack you. Yes, I'm going to slap the cigarette out of your mouth and into your mom's while you're meatloaf. Eating, while you're smoking a cigarette at dinner because you're such a bad kid or That's right. tough. That was a very fifties tough. Thing Indeed. To yes, it was. Look how tough I am. I'm I smoking a cigarette while I'm eating meatloaf. And then. After he is struck in the face right. by his father at a weird angle, so he probably didn't get a lot of mm-hmm. heft in it. No, unfortunately, um, sadly, no. But it did knock that cigarette right into mom's meatloaf, who continues to eat the meatloaf. Which suggests that there's a, a, um, a cycle of abuse by which cigarettes are put into meatloaf all the time. That's true. This is just, it's is it just, just a cigarette. That's right. what it's for. Exactly. Then he gets that stupid, dumb smile on his face. Bobby, there was another word that was going to come out of your mouth. Too, no, <laughs> I don't think so. I think I just tripped. Um, Bobby has a real dumb look on his face mm-hmm. 90% of the time. The time that he's not actively talking, he has this weird half smile. So it's like resting idiot face. Yes, he has, okay. that's what it is, yes. R-I-F, resting idiot face. We switch back over to the diner where Truman and Cooper are interviewing Norma. Now we know her name. Who's so pretty. They're all so pretty. This is a very attractive town. Once again, I'd like to remind you that these people are on television. It doesn't matter. I'm sure there are towns that are that attractive. So they're asking Norma about Laura's 
uh, involvement in the Meals on Wheels program. That, for those of you keeping track at home, is job number three. Uh, cherry pie is ordered, and the log lady is sitting at the table. Uh, Cooper asks Truman if he's allowed to ask her about her log, and Truman's response is, many have tried. <laughs> which is maybe my favorite line in the show. And then the log lady comes over, you know, saying, I heard you talking about Laura. She says, someday my log will have something to say on the subject. My log saw something that night. And then she says, or he asks her what, what, what the log saw. She says, ask my log, and he doesn't do it. And I am ashamed of him. I think that maybe he felt in that political climate it's wrong to talk to a woman about her log. I, I she, she didn't want him to I, talk to her about her log. She wanted him to address the log directly. And frankly, this lady is clearly special. And so talk to the log and you'll find out what his... Talk so, to the what, log. Talk to the log. Right, okay. Talk to the log, the face don't understand. <laughs> I'm not sure how the log sees anything. No, but in translating what the log saw, perhaps you'll find out what the lady saw. Okay, well, mm-hmm. I'm sure that that opportunity will come again, and it'll be probably. But I just thought that that was a missed opportunity. I was like, this dude's on board for some weird things. There's no reason that he wouldn't have asked the log, mm-hmm. but Maybe he didn't. Interrupted the two other slices of pie that he ordered. That's true. Yes, yes, so she leaves, and then he orders two more slices of pie. Unclear to me whether those were two pie, two more slices of pie for himself or one slice for himself and one for Truman. I think it was supposed to be two more pli- slices of pie for himself because Truman makes the observation that he must have the metabolism of a, what, hummingbird or something? Mm, bumblebee. Bumblebee. Yes. Um, but I think he just has the unique hanging upside down exercise program, which well, that's right. We didn't right. talk about that when we when we enter uh, in the beginning. He's narrating, and then the, when we when we scan around the the empty hotel room, and we find we end up on his feet, and then scan down his body because he is hanging upside down from just a pole. Right. It looks like a pull-up bar or whatever, and then he has these things around his ankles to hang him there. Oh, and he also has ankle gar- or he has garters for yes. his socks. Which... Yes, sock garters, right. yes. All right, so end at the diner after he misses his chance to really... Did you say enter the diner? End at the oh, diner. Okay. I thought you said enter the diner. I thought, oh, the least popular of Bruce Lee's films. <laughs> and then we, are, we go to Shelley's. Shelley's getting back from work. She's... Lovingly brought her terrible husband a slice of pie because as she was leaving for work, he had said, I'm coming by the diner, save me a slice of pie, while squeezing her cheek in a very uncomfortable way for a very long time. Um, But apparently he never showed up. So she brought him pie because she didn't want to get hit. And then it turns out it doesn't matter because he's like, where's my shirt? And she's like, what? And he says... I need to teach you how to take care of my things, and that includes not misplacing or damaging them. He has put a bar of soap in a sock. In a sock. And then swings it above his head, and then there is a sound effect, like almost like a helicopter or something, and we don't see him actually strike her, but she cowers into the corner of... Apparently it's not a trailer. It is a house, but it is a... Partially built house. Yeah, exactly. Which makes me wonder what the story is there with the partially constructed house. Well, you know, you got to leave a bunch of space open for the cocaine that you're no doubt bringing around the country. Right. That's my assumption. We don't know if that's true, but well, why else do Bobby and Mike owe 20K? This is like a, a real... He's a jerk. Yes. And, and that scene of terrible abuse is then juxtaposed over at Donna's house. Donna, girl mm-hmm. next door Donna, has James coming over for dinner because... Or fruit punch. For the, well, yes, he is going to order some fruit, ask for some fruit punch. So James is coming for dinner, introduced to the parents. Um, we find out, incidentally, that Donna's mom is in a wheelchair. We don't know why, mm-hmm. um, but that is the, her normal state of being, which was kind of a cool thing. 
Because it's not even brought up. It wasn't. James doesn't even ask how did you. So I'm sure in a small town so everybody there's knows. There's something about this scene though that that I find interesting. Hmm. All right, David Lynch is not a big guy for a mobile camera. His I camera, don't know what that even means. Well, that means that um, there are some directors. Okay, an obvious example is someone like Peter Jackson, where it feels like he's mounted a camera on the back of a bird and set it loose on the set. There's constant swooping oh, okay. and motion, and mm-hmm. and then there are directors like Orson Welles who did long tracking shots. David Lynch seems to favor a static camera. Put a camera up, right. have people saying and weird people stuff. people move around it. And okay. I think that that emphasizes at times how awkward everything is. And that scene in particular, and I know that he didn't direct this episode, but his influence is all over it, has that feeling of you're standing awkwardly in a corner watching these people do this very strange social interaction. Mm. And it worked really well there because I felt instantly uncomfortable. Like, I'm not supposed to be in this room listening to these people have this weird conversation about fruit punch. It wasn't a weird conversation about fruit punch. Well, it wasn't weird conversation, but it was one of those awkward social interactions, I felt like. Well, he's come in, mm-hmm. and they say, do you want something to drink? Right. We have, um, I don't remember the first, thing, maybe milk, fruit punch, and, and sparkling, sparkling cider. cider. Um, and he asks for fruit punch. He asks for fruit punch, which... Uh, which it, is a child's beverage. Right, exactly, but it's a man who, you know, obviously is the badass biker guy. But he's not even a man because he was in the or high young school. Man. Right, so. but we're, we're, we're portraying this image one way, so we're getting to mm-hmm. a certain extent he is this guy. And then he's asking for, like, the most childish beverage in the world, almost as if he's shrinking down to size so mm-hmm. that he's not threatening Right, and when, you, when it's just he and Donna sitting across from each other mm. at the table, he is, and I noticed that, super hunched over. Right. Like, he is making himself very small in this right. space. Um, my sense is that that is the picture that he believes of himself. I right. don't think he's a badass. I, or I don't think he right. believes he's a badass. I think he believes he is small. Now, this is a person who we find out his father died mm-hmm. at 10, or when he was 10. His father was not Died 10. at 10. He mm-hmm. started the family very like young. Davy Crockett right. killed a bear when he was only three. Um, died at 10. And his mother travels a lot and writes occasionally for the paper. So I guess she's a journalist. That's what I'm going to... Take from that, yes. And then, so he stays a lot with Ed and Aunt Nadine, and he says, quote, she's a character, and I said, I've been saying that this whole time. Well, um, she's more of a character this time when you find out her devotion to curtains, which has led me to another theory of the crime that I won't express just yet. Ooh, yes. I'm excited. Well, it's, I'm going to abandon my pirate theory. Um, so so while um, Donna's family and James are having this dinner, outside, Bobby and Mike are in Mike's car, mm-hmm. and they're outside of Donna's house, and Mike says, oh, this guy, first your girlfriend, then mine. And I'm like, Mike, I don't think that's your girlfriend anymore. I just don't think you're aware of it yet. Bobby says, too bad we can only kill him once. So that's... Once should be enough. Well, once is enough, but that's a very cavalier thing for a 17-year-old to say. Well, we learned that he'd already killed somebody else. Allegedly. Once again, this is something that somebody who's afraid of somebody has heard secondhand. So I don't think Donna, who was the one that had Mm. said that before, um, was there when it happened. So once again, this is alleged. I mean, it's possible that my thought is that Leo maybe is killing people and then pinning it. It's also it. possible the log saw something. So it's this is it's a very, probable right. that the log saw something. Um, and then the final scene is Dr. Jacoby, nothing in his ears this time. He's He appears to be at home. He also appears to be in a tiki lounge, so I think his home might be a tiki lounge. And he's listening to a tape that Laura sent him on the 23rd. That would be the previous Thursday, mm-hmm. the day before her death, talking about a mystery man, talking about being afraid she was going to get lost in the woods again. And then he pulls out a coconut and opens it up, and it is... The gold heart necklace. We can presume he's the one who snatched the gold heart necklace after it was abandoned by the two young lovers in the last episode, right? Right. And that this is now a theme. We end with Dr. Jacoby and the necklace. 
That's how we end episodes of the show. Right. We're two for two. Okay. And he's crying. He's That's crying. the other thing. He is well, crying. Well, because he's listening to a message left by Laura. Yes. A tape that I, we was, we presume he she had mailed the tape to him. Right. If she had taped it on Thursday, this is Saturday, it's likely he received it that day. Mm-hmm. And so this is the first time he's hearing it. And this is a practice that they had had um, because she narrates somewhat awkwardly. As you know, this mm-hmm. is a tape that you gave me. And right. as you know, I mailed it to you in one of the envelopes that you gave me. Like, it's very expositional. Again, yes. <laughs> um, and that is probably the clunkiest exposition because we get some of J- some exposition of James's family at the family dinner, but that right. was a little bit smoother because, oh, I don't feel like I know your family very well in this right. town. Oh, it's because of this, that, and the other. That makes sense for a first... Right date situation um but this felt extraneous in a in a sort of an obvious way Mm -hmm. um but then yeah it closes on him crying so and the end of episode two who done it who do you think has done the done uh, my new theory is that they're it's not pirates obviously okay course um i believe that uh the woman with the eye patch may actually be a cat. A cat? A, a cat. feline? Yes. Okay. Sort of like cat people. Remember? Oh. She turns into a cat when sexually aroused. So, so she's like a were-cat. A were-cat. Okay. So that would explain her fascination with curtains and small noises, crepitations, if you will, that happen inside of her house that cause her to go mad and kill people with her ferocious, ferocious biting. So you still believe it's Nadine, you just feel like I her... think the motivation is different. I don't think she I no longer think she's a pirate. With connections to people out on the lake that was being I, which I don't understand the location of the lake in this town. Because you see it in the opening scenes of the first of the pilot. And this oh no. And then you see the waterfall, so I don't see exactly where the My lake is. My guess is that the lake is at the bottom like well, it's I not should even hope a so, full I wouldn't lake. want to be fishing on the top of that. <laughs> Oh, that's right, because he was and fishing. That's plunging right. <laughs> into the lower lake. Yeah, that's a little... Something tells me it's upper and lower lake. It's very sinister in itself. Um, it's easier to catch fish there, though. They're already dead. So my, I ended up with thinking it was going to be Catherine. Mm-hmm. I still don't like that lady. I don't think that she murdered these girls. Once again, I'm going to ask you who the three men that she had sex with were. I mean, one of them may very well have been James. One of them might have been the psychiatrist. One of them might have been Bobby. Uh-huh. I and don't think it was the psychiatrist. Well, I don't know. It could be. Because she, could, she mentioned right, she that has... she wanted to have met him earlier in life. Although earlier for her, I'm not sure Would exactly. Would have been like right. straight up childhood. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I don't know. She had so many men in her life and so many jobs. I do understand the cocaine now. But it's also possible that she was not actually doing cocaine and was just selling cocaine. Right. I feel like there's going to be a drug thing. Like, that's where the money has to be coming from, I think. I wonder if people listening to this are going to be super annoyed. Yes, they will be. Because they've already seen all this. Because they've seen this. And they know that perhaps there weren't pirates involved or cat people. I don't know. Although... For heaven's sakes, there was somebody crouching in a corner looking at the mom. Yeah. So anything goes in this town. But then I'm also like, okay, mom is grieving. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is mom mentally ill? Perhaps. Was this a thing that was genetic? Mm -hmm. Perhaps. Was Laura then mentally ill? Perhaps. How did Ronette get roped in? And I'm still on this... How did a serial killer kill one person one year and then kidnap and try and kill two people in the same day a whole year later? So I want to know more about the previous murder. Uh-huh. And I think Leo has something to do with it. I can't get away from Leo. He's a bad dude. I think that I'm interested in what the, the symbolism of the letters tucked underneath the fingernails are. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they haven't really addressed that other than mm-hmm. that was the unifying clue that made them look from one, or drew a connection between Laura Palmer and the others. I'm wondering if that gentleman, um, Albert, that Cooper was talking to on the phone mm-hmm. and that's going to come up may have some insight into that. Right. Um, and so that's something we're looking forward to. All right, so... That's episode two of Twin Peaks. Anything current 
that you want to recommend or even just more recent? There's a film I mentioned to you this afternoon, uh, which is unrelated to Twin Peaks, but it's a film that now that I mentioned it, I want to see it again. It's not a recent film. It's called The Changeling, and it's from the very early 1980s, possibly 1980, with George C. Scott and his then wife. And it opens with a real shock scene for the main character, and then goes on to his uh, moving into a composer, moving into a house in absolute grief, and becoming in rapport with the ghost of a murdered child who lives in the house. Yes. And it's a ghost movie. It's a ghost movie, but it's also a mystery film. Well, you're about to give everything away. That's enough. I no, feel no, no, like no. you've said enough. No, but um, <laughs> part of what makes this film so fascinating is that I believe the producer or director of the film actually based it on an experience he had renting a house that was haunted and developing a rapport Allegedly. with <laughs> the ghosts that lived in the house. Not to the ends here where it solves an entire mystery. It fits really well. There's... um. There's And it started with Charles Dickens, a whole correlation between ghost stories and mystery stories. And some of the best ones, like The Ring, for instance, are a ghost story and a mystery, or Casting the Rose is a ghost story and a mystery. You have a deadline, you have a certain amount of time you have to solve this mystery, because if not, there's a horrible consequence. Oh, like The Ring. That's right, right. The yes. Ring or, or Curse of the Demon or some of those. So this kind of follows that pattern where there's something that has to be solved or undone because something really terrible happened. Uh, Lady in White is another example of a really good kind of ghost okay, story. Okay, you better stop listing. I said a but, thing for right, people thing, too but much. It's part of that tradition of stories, so I would really highly recommend if you can find it anywhere. You better look right now while I talk uh-huh. and I'm, see if this is a thing that's available to people. Oh, well, I got I have it on DVD, so it's available somewhere. But I mean, in terms of streaming agencies, I don't know who would. Carry it right now. I am going to... So, if you are late to The Changeling, you should watch The Changeling. And I am going to say The Gifted on Fox right now um, is a a Marvel property, even though it's not Marvel doing it, because Fox owns the the X-Men and isn't licensing grand. But The Gifted uh, is about mutants who are running an underground the mutant underground and a family who finds themselves with mutant children um, and then they have to go on the run. Uh, and it's very good. Um, the effects are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever you're dealing with anything sort of supernatural on straight television, sometimes the effects are not great <coughs> in humans. <coughs> um, <laughs> And I think it's a very impressive giant dog, though. Well, let's, we don't grow. need to talk about the Inhumans. We'll talk about them at another time. But The Gifted is very good. And it has Bill from True Blood doing a different American accent. And uh, Jamie Chung from The Real World doing some actual, to honest-to-goodness acting. She did in Gotham as well. Oh, did she? Was she, she played Vicki Vale's aunt. Oh, interesting. And she was very good in that. I mean... Mostly you're just watching her in very high heels. And she was very impressive. Like, <laughs> Not oh, so much in this. In this, she, right. I think she's wearing flats she's at all times. She's tr- trying to act more rather than just sort of stun you or into submission. But yeah, yes. and, and even through some makeup effects. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's doing some good work. Um, it's, a, it's a good show. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, it is. We're it's caught enjoyable. up, so that's a pretty good indication of how, how well we like it. Um, so I would say get in on The Gifted. Don't be late. Look at me with my catchphrases. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. (laughs) All right. So I think that brings us to the end of this episode. And thank you so much for listening. I'm going to ask you to please uh, rate us on iTunes. Positively, we hope. Review, subscribe, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. You can find us at all those locations. I want to thank uh, Freak Fandango Orchestra for the theme song, Late As Usual, from their album, Tales of a Dead Fish. So, Which is the fish that wound up with the percolator. Yes. There we go. Percolator fish. You can find us on Twitter at LatecomersPod. You can find me on Twitter at Amity Armstrong Lemuel Twitter. 
Mm, no, not yet. Yeah, didn't think so. You can email us uh, questions, comments, concerns, randomness at latecomerspod at gmail.com. Um, I have another podcast called Podcast Collected Presents, which you can find anywhere you call, uh, find podcasts. We come out every other Wednesday and we review and discuss podcasts. And I think I've said that word enough times in the last three seconds. You guys are all fantastic, and uh, we will talk to you next week. And remember, here we go, better late than normal. Oh, he scrunched his face up. It might be the best look yet. I'm going to get this time. I'm one of these times. I'm very excited about it. I want you to pipe in with a thing. (laughs) I have nothing to say.